There are over 7 billion people on the earth. But to my knowledge, there is only one person who is an authority on both the investigation and solving of Jacob Wetterling's disappearance and the disappearance of Jody Husentrout. You get to hear from her today. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. I think we tend to forget that before there was Unfound and Up and Vanished and Generation Y and Insight and Serial, etc., before this whole true crime podcast thing got started, there were people who were bringing attention to disappearances and trying to solve them through their work of local reporting, going to libraries, remember those, perusing microfiche of old newspaper articles, and wearing out the shoe leather to track down leads. I wonder if we true crime hosts give the forerunners to us their due credit. Caroline Lowe is one of those people. She was covering Jacob Wetterling's disappearance well before In the Dark or any other show did. She's been to the locations. She's become close to Jacob's family over the last 20 years. And she was there when Danny Heinrich was brought into the courtroom to answer for his crimes. The same goes for her work on Jody Husentrude's story. Well before the TV show disappeared or any podcast covered her missing persons case, Carolyn was drawing connections about some crimes she knew about in Minnesota and Jody's disappearance in Mason City, Iowa. In fact, it was Carolyn who was the source of the material used for the Who's and Truth episode we did on the podcast I used to be a part of. And I still believe that episode is the most complete coverage you'll ever get on Jody's disappearance. You should check it out if you can find it. I thought interviewing Carolyn would give Unfound a chance to dip its toe into the well-known cases category, but in a different way, by talking to a professional reporter who has been there since almost the beginning. Keep in mind, we're not going to go over all the facts, timelines, etc. You can do that on your own time if you're not familiar with either disappearance. Instead, I wanted you to hear her overall impressions from working on these cases for over 20 years, a perspective none of us podcast hosts can provide. I hope you enjoy it. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Carolyn Lowe. Carolyn, welcome to Unfound. It's good to be talking with you again, Ed. Uh, Pleasure talking to you again, too, Carolyn. Uh, Let the listeners know uh, a little bit about yourself, your experience, uh, your expertise, and then I want to get into a little bit about what, what you've recently added to your resume. I've been a crime reporter. Been I've been in journalism about 40 years. Actually, I hit my 40th anniversary on March 15, 1977. Started as a newsroom clerk at WCCO-TV in Minneapolis at the CBS station back there. Spent about 34 years there where I worked my way up to becoming a crime, became a crime reporter. Then I moved out to California six years ago, spent a little over four years as a manager at the NBC affiliate in San Luis Obispo, KSBY. And several months ago, I moved to Petaluma, California, up outside the San Francisco area where our children live to uh, continue working. I worked freelance for CARA TV in Minneapolis, where I worked on the Jacob Wetterling case. And I recently obtained my California, excuse me, I recently passed the California private investigators exam 
and we'll be receiving a California private investigator's license in the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, as a reporter over those years, what was your main concentration crime or was it just anything that came up? What would you say your concentration was over those years? By far, my concentration was the crime, the criminal justice beat. So you spent a lot of time, I guess, in courtrooms and talking to police and detectives, you know, trying to get whatever you could out of them, I guess, wherever you were stationed. Exactly. Everything, as you said, from courtrooms to crime scenes to victims' homes, uh, interviewed convicted killers, rapists in prison, uh, police, all of the different people who are part of the criminal justice system. And many, many years getting to know victims and their families. This um, PIP, the private investigator test that you took and, and, and that you passed, how do you think that is going to add to what everything that you've already done? And how is it going to maybe some t uh, in some ways alter what you've been doing? I think what it will do, or what I hope it will do, is give me uh, more networking, more access to other investigators. Most private investigators I've met over the years are former police investigators, so they, they are grounded in that kind of a background. Uh, there's also terrific training. I'm going in uh, next month to a private investigators conference called Cali at the State Convention in California, three-day conference in Reno. You hear some of the best investigators speak, describe how they solve cases, how they get people to confess, how they interacted with victims, just a lot more education, more tools that will help me. Um, that's in addition to, I belong to the Investigative Reporters and Editors Organization, IRE, which also has provided a lot of training over the years. But I've found the more people you talk to, the more people, the more training you have, um, the better I can be at what I'm doing. Uh, the other thing it will give me access to is more databases for information, databases that can track somebody down, they can show you relationships of one person with another, and hopefully all this ultimately will help me find Jody and other missing person cases that are unsolved that I've worked on before. Very good. Let's talk about Jacob Wetterling. Um, how did you become involved in this? Uh, you uh, weren't necessarily there on the day they disappeared, but given that this that case went for uh, you know over a couple days, decades easily, how did you become involved in it? And then we'll just go from there. I think any reporter who was in Minnesota back in the 1980s became involved at some point. Jacob, you know, disappeared uh, 20, 27 years ago, and I became involved probably about 25 years ago. And then over the years. I would do anniversary stories with Patty, Jacob's mother, and his father, Jerry, with his family. would do updates. There would be a suspect from time to time, some names in the news. Um, the last 10 years, I would say things have intensified, if anything. It's almost uh, seven years ago that I stood outside a farm just down the road from the Wetterlings where the FBI and local investigators tore up the property of a person of interest at the time uh, down the road from the Wetterlings and spent two days there watching them dig up the property. It was a local teacher. He was looked at very closely and for many, many years became what was basically one of many, many persons of interest. Uh, I moved to California six years ago. One of the last, the last story I did in Minnesota, I interviewed Patty Wetterling. I went back and visited with her, talked with her as, uh, about Jacob, and uh, in fact, she came to my going away party a few days later, gave me a little a stone that says hope on it, which I carried with me to California. So it stayed with me over the years. There have been developments I would keep in touch with out here in California. And then out of the blue, it really was out of the blue, it's going on two years, uh, a year and a half ago, there was a big break. The U.S. attorney 
and Minneapolis stunned everybody when announced that they believe they had identified the person who was responsible for Jacob's kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Danny Heinrich. What now that this is the case has been resolved, and of course there have been millions of Americans who have followed this. They were wondering what happened. As you mentioned, there were various suspects over the years. Um, what are your impressions? You know, living with that as long as you do, because I know that. This just wasn't a case for you. This is something that I think affected you somewhat personally. Obviously, you got to know the family, and you had a picture of Jacob. You know, how can you can you talk about that? Still do. I think it's impossible. It's impossible to meet the Wetterlings. I think it's impossible to raise your. It's impossible to raise your child, children in Minnesota during that time, and not be affected. He became part of our family. Their family, their pain became part of all of ours. Uh, I think it changed how we raised our children. My son at the time was five, our daughter was two, and I remember not telling our son when he was five, I thought, well, chances of him being a victim of stranger abduction are so small, I don't want to have this be part of his world. Well, I found out about a year later that he and his friends had been talking about it. He heard about it at school, so I, you know, I thought I was protecting him. So we, it affected how we raised our children. It was always there, and it was always this unfinished business. I live in Petaluma, California now, where there's another very famous, nationally famous crime. A 12-year-old girl, Polly Kloss, was kidnapped a few years after Jacob, and that was horrific. It was a national story. It went on for two months before they found her, but it was resolved. And I can see the difference in this community now where they knew, they know. It's mm-hmm. awful. It's still part of their fabric, but they know with Jacob, it was 27 years of not knowing. And then so abruptly, there's this person you know, we're hearing is a person of interest. And I was very skeptical. When I first heard it, I thought, here we go again. I've been on this roller coaster. I can't imagine what the Wetterlings are going through. And I really questioned whether there was really something to it. At the same time, I'd never seen the U.S. attorney do anything like that. So I thought they must have something. Uh, a few days after this, that broke, I, Care Lovins News Director James Helmke contacted me and asked me if I would come back and work on the case. And I uh, jumped at the chance. I've been doing many interviews reflecting on it like we're doing now, but the chance to get back on the ground and maybe do some digging in Minnesota prompted me to go back and work for a while on that. And there were ups and downs, and you know, I thought, wow, they're really close. And then there were many things that didn't go anywhere. Went back several times. And then last summer, out of the blue, it was Labor Day weekend. I remember I was in San Francisco. We were condo sitting at our son's place. And I get a call in the middle of the night from crew back in Minneapolis that supposedly Jacob's remains have been found and I mean it's just so shocking and so I in my pajamas started making calls and then I text Patty Wetterling I dreaded doing that and she sent the text back to me and she confirmed she said you know our hearts are broken I confirm Jacob's been found I mean I can't tell you Ed what was I just sat there and stared at it and as I'm talking to you I mean I still have that text and uh, it's very very sad and it still feels unreal at times. It still just doesn't seem real that it's finally closed. When you first started this, I'm, I'm sure you didn't realize that maybe that it was go on for as long as it did. I mean, nobody ever thinks that it, you know, an unsolved disappearance is going to go, you know, for 20 some years. But were you almost surprised then, being that it went so long that it ended? You know, you kind of flipped it, it, over the years. It did. It, my, I remember my husband saying to me, all these years, it's done, where's Jacob? And I, what's the next chapter? We now know where Jacob is. And then after his body was found, you know, I hopped on a plane the next day, it went back to Minnesota. I was in court when he was 
I just, in the front row, got the first seat there, was there when he described what happened, and it made it so real and so awful. You know, you try to put on your reporter cap, and he's describing Jacob's words about, you know, he was cold, and what did I do wrong? I mean, I'll never forget that. And it brought it 27 years later to the present. Uh, I'd say we're all still processing it. You're like, where do you go with that? It's just as Patty Wetterling said, all those years of thinking he might come home, suddenly you know and it's, I think everybody's adjusting where to go next. And I applaud the mm-hmm. Wetterlings because they plan to continue their whole message of child safety. They've had, Patty particularly, has had such an impact on the laws and the education in our country about children and safety. Mm-hmm. Were you always hope? I mean, I know you were hopeful that it would be solved, but was there a part of you that once it got to like about maybe, let's say, 20 years, you thought, you know what, I mean, I could live to be 100 years old and this still might not be solved? Oh, Yes, I, I remember saying I was prepared to, you know, go to crime scenes with my cane if I had to, and uh, but and I would hope that I'd at least ultimately get to have that chapter, be there for the family and to cover it. But uh, I knew that the the reality is most of the cases do get solved, so that would be what would keep me going. I didn't have a hope, much hope that it would re- turn out to be like some of them have over the years, where you have the girls in Ohio, you have the women in Ohio. We've had cases out in California. You have the case, uh, you know, the smart girl is the smart didn't really think that was likely to happen, but it was, on the other hand, I'd often sat with Patty in her kitchen and just the two of us, and you'd see the hope in her eyes, and I had a hard time letting go, go of that hope as well, even in a balance with reality that probably wasn't going to happen that way. Yeah. You told, uh, you just mentioned, you were in court when Danny uh, Heinrich um, showed up, you know, he was brought in to, you know, and talked about you know, the last moments of Jacob's life. What is, what are your impressions of him? Um, had you ever heard of him is before his name brought up over the years that no. you covered it or what's your impressions of him now that this is, this is over? I still feel like we don't really know him very well. I've gotten to know his brother over the last year and a half. And uh, he truly believed that he, you know, he did not believe his brother was involved. And and then actually when the evidence finally came out, he said, how do you not believe that he did it? But he kept it to himself. And he's still a bit of a mystery to a lot of people and to me as well. I would say that day when he first described it, what happened in court, he seemed more like, I think I said at one point, he sounded like he was just reciting from a telephone book. I didn't pick up a lot of emotion. The day he was sentenced, when the Wetterlings were there, he seemed a bit more emotional. Excuse me. Um, somebody thought they saw a tear. I didn't see it. His back was toward us, so we didn't get to see him. Um, I don't feel like I really have a sense of him. Most sentencings I've been to, you can see them. We could not see him. All we could see was the back of his head, hear his words. If you were granted the opportunity to talk to Danny Heinrich, would you do that? I would very much like an opportunity to talk with him. I feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions, both in the timeline of what happened with Jacob. I'm also would like to ask him about some cases that happened before Jacob was abducted. Last fall, I interviewed some parents of a boy who looks just like Jacob, who is from his hometown, who was an attempted abduction case that happened in July before Jacob disappeared in that disappeared in October. Uh, they feel that it's the same person. The parents feel it's the same person that tried to grab their son. They reported it at the time. Nothing really went anywhere. It really wasn't a crime. He just pulled up to him, said some things, but it concerned them enough to contact the authorities. As soon as Jacob was abducted, they went back to law enforcement and said, we think that's the same guy, and then they ended up interviewing him. His name is Andy Newton. They interviewed him, and uh, they do believe to this day that 
that Danny Heinrich is a person who tried to grab their son. There's another person I interviewed, Adam Klapoppy Hockey, who lived down the road from Jacob. He had been bothered by somebody jumping out in the months leading up to Jacob's abduction. He wasn't home that night, but he usually went to that same Tom Thumb convenience store where Jacob, his brother and best friend, went. He thinks that he was an intended target. I'd like to ask him. It's not going to get him charged with anything, but I would like to be part of giving these people answers. You get close mm-hmm. to them. they hangs over them still. It's unresolved for them. They would like to know. And those are some of the things I'd like to ask him. I'd like to know more about his childhood. I'd like to know more what he's been doing all these years. I'd like to learn from him. Is there anything that would have gotten him to tell law enforcement sooner where Jacob was? Because if I can learn from that, maybe that person who abducted Jody Hughesentrup, a missing woman from Mason City, Iowa, that I've covered, maybe we can learn from that and help solve that case. So, yes, mm-hmm. I would very much like to sit down with Danny Heinrich. If if you can, and once again, if you can't answer this question, it's I totally understand. When you talk to uh, Danny's brother, uh, you said that he did not think that his brother could ever do something like that. Well, we now know that he did. Um, was there anything that may, maybe that Danny's brother had told you that you know were warning signs that you can look back and no. say warning signs, like how he was brought up, you know, how Danny was raised, or anything like that. No, there were things there. There's clearly there were clearly some difficult things in their childhood that he shared, but nothing specific. I mean, lots of people I've met have had difficult childhoods, have had issues. Nothing that stood out. I mean, they claimed that he was bullied at school. There were some things like that, but nothing that for sure said yes that he was that would explain this horrific thing that he did to Jacob. Um, and that, I mean, now David does feel, David, his brother does feel, you know, doesn't question that Danny was involved in it, but um, he doesn't have anything specific that I've seen yet that explains it. Okay. Let's move on to this. There was a uh, another show called In the Dark that covered uh, Jacob Wetterling's disappearance in, in a, in a mm-hmm. uh, series format, you know, one episode, two episode, three episode, in contrast right. to Here on Found, where we do one case per episode. And right. uh, I feel like I need to answer this. You can answer this, answer this, ask you this. You can answer this any way you'd like. Being that you are a member of law enforcement, now you're going to be getting your private investigator license. They really, in the first couple episodes, I think, episode two really played up all the mistakes that the police made in Jacob Wetterling's disappearance early on, very early on. Is that how you interpret what went on back then? I know that might've been before you were personally involved in reporting on it. What is your impression of those early days? If you can answer it from a standpoint of law enforcement. What I would say is where I would be inclined to say anything at this point or indict them, question whatever is, I would like to see the 38,000 pages of reports that will be coming out shortly. We're told from the Stearns County Sheriff's Office that includes their reports, includes FBI reports, includes the state Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. I would like to go through those volumes of things and see what's in there. Uh, clearly with Daniel Rassier, that was not the right person. They clearly lost a lot of time focusing on him. But I've seen that before in other cases, and I want to see I want to see what they have. I am really interested to see what they had on Danny Heinrich 27 years ago and what kind of things you know, were missed, what, the certain mm. things that were obviously there that we don't know about. I have heard talk to people who, an agent who worked on it for the FBI back then, who said 
he disputes some of what's in that show. He claims that they did go door to door, that they did go around the neighborhood and talk to people. So again, I'd like to see those reports before I feel I'm in any kind of position to really answer that with any credibility. I totally understand. Um, because Jacob Wetterling's disappearance, I've not covered it as an episode, but it came up tangentially when I covered the disappearance of Joshua Guimond, who disappeared in that right. same area from St. John's University uh, back in the mm -hmm. 2000s. And Patrick Marker, who uh, runs the website Behind the Pine Curtain, uh, has covered that mm -hmm. disappearance, been in relation to some of the sexual abuse allegations and charges that have been leveled against priests on the campus mm -hmm. of St. John's University. And he had, had expressed some concern that the police were making the, you know, the same mistakes in Joshua's case that they had made in, in Jacob's case. And so I felt like if anybody's been listening to this uh, to Unfound since the beginning, they know that Jacob's uh, case has come up before in relation to police departments and whether Joshua's case is being covered as well as it could be. So I thank you for uh, stating that, you know, the, the jury, I guess, is still out as exactly. to what the police I mean, maybe, maybe did and they, didn't do. What they, and you brought it, you mentioned the priests, and one of the things that was a huge thing as they looked into it is there, because of all the allegations about priests, there are many people that suspected it was a local mem member of the clergy. There were so many different things that they were looking at, so many different directions, and it's, you know, when, when this episode was done in the dark, that came together right around the time the Heinrichs thing came together. So it's we can see now because we know what happened. But again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and and maybe it'll turn out to be the same with Jody. Maybe there's somebody right there, Jody Hughes and Truth, that was there from the beginning, or it could turn out to be none of the above. Um, just for the record, I just want to make sure this is clear. You had never heard of Danny Heinrich's name until virtually before he was charged. I personally had not heard of it, but I do know and subsequently learned that uh, in our, I was not part of the investigative unit at that time at, at WCCO, but his name was one of several that uh, but he was one of several people included in a piece that WCCO did many years ago on various suspects and potential people of interest. They did not name him, but that was that they actually covered him. So he was there. Al Garber, the retired FBI guy who was in charge of the case back in the initial days, uh, he alluded to him not by name, but he referred to him in his book that came out a few years ago. So his name was out there, but boy, there were so many names. Ed, uh, he didn't was not at the top. He was on a long short list, perhaps, if you will, but not one that I was personally aware of. Okay. And do you have any idea how was it an extensive list? Probably 20 names, 25 names? Oh, many, many, many names. I mean, there were so many people up until the week before things broke with Danny Heinrich, I was pursuing another lead that some people thought was, you know, very strong. And I can't say much more than that because it turned, it had a lot of things to said, take a look at it. There were a number of other people in the area, people who had a history, a lot more promising potential suspects than Danny Heinrich. You know, we're looking at him now. We hear all about the Painesville cases, the, the kids who were approached by somebody, grabbed by somebody. And we heard about Jared Shirel, who happened, who was abducted and sexually assaulted. 10 months before Jacob, but Danny Heinrich was not a convicted sex offender. He was not on any official list, but there were plenty of people who were, and those are the ones you're going to start with as you're looking for a person who's potentially involved in the abduction of a child. Right. You, you had mentioned this before, but I think I need to specifically mention it again. Now that this is over, what can we learn about Jacob Wetterling, about how it was covered, 
um, maybe the investigation that went on. I know this is going to be something maybe that's continuing, but what are your impressions? What do you think that you've personally learned over the years? You know, how, is, how, how have your views changed or matured? I think, well, the way it broke in the end, which again brings me up to other cases I've looked at, is in the end, when Patty Wetterling convinced the investigators on the 25th anniversary of Jacob's abduction to take another look, and they brought in some fresh eyes. And one of the things that led to the break is one of them told one of the investigators came across a police report in which Jared Shirell, the 12-year-old boy who from Cold Spring, it's about 10 miles from where Jacob's abducted, uh, came across a report. And the boy uh, in the report, Jared's mother, had mentioned watching him wipe his sleeve. And that caught the attention. Like, gee, mate, could there be some DNA available? So they went and tested the sleeve, the shirt, and it turned out that was Danny Heinrich's DNA. That was there all that time. But 27 years ago, you didn't have that kind of DNA. You didn't have the technology. But it shows you that in many ways, the best thing is to go back to the basics. That's what I do in cases. Now, I'm rereading news clippings on Jody Hughes' route mm. from 22 years ago to see is there something in there that might be a lesson. So never ignore the stuff from day one that might be right there. And in the end, most cases also turn out to be local. Jacob got lots of national attention. Other ones like Jody have. But in the end, it's probably going to be somebody right in your community or close by. Those are good points. I really like what you're saying about getting back to the basics. You know, If you ever get stuck on something, go back to the original source material. And look over it one more time. I, I, I like that. I really love that and idea. And a lot of the people you go, well, a lot of the people you go back to, too, relationships change. Uh, I've seen over the years people who were alibis. In one case, a woman was alibi for her husband, was later convicted of murder. She, three years later, admitted that she was in fear of him and she changed her story. I've, so go back and talk to people. Maybe somebody who wouldn't talk to you years ago might talk now. So never, you know, don't, don't fail to go down that path. Yes. And if right. somebody doesn't call you back, call them, reach out to them again. I reach out to a lot of people on Facebook now. We have a lot of tools we didn't have back then. I attract people down that way. Just keep going after them and let your persistence be maybe what gets them to finally talk to you and maybe provide key information. That brings up maybe a good question I can ask you. If Jacob Wetterling uh, disappears today, does it take 25 years to solve his disappearance? With with you 2017 have, technology and Amber Alerts and Facebook and everything else, what what do you think? Oh, I the I think the chances of solving that are infinite. You know, just unbelievably better because for one thing, if Jacob and his brother and best friend are out biking and something happens now, they have cell phones. The boys did not have to run home to call, tell their babysitter to call authorities. They'd have a phone. You'd have time would be on your side. They could track the cell phones. They could track. If Jacob had a cell phone with him, when it happened, they could, you know, they could ping it. They can do things that we didn't have back then. You have DNA, the kind of DNA that you can get now compared to years ago is just so much better than anything we had. But in the end, it's still a lot of it's the basics of talking to people, getting people to come forward. One other tool we have today is the internet. Again, talking about Jody's case, we have our website. That's why I hope that by keeping Jody out there, it's why I do interviews like this. Did another one locally here last week to keep it out there, knowing that no matter where anybody is in the world, they can reach our site. And just maybe whoever took Jody is coming to our site. Maybe somebody who knows something, who thinks it's been solved, will come to our site and realize it hasn't been solved. And maybe that person has some key information that could be make a difference. Let's talk about Jody. We're not going to go through all the facts and everything. In fact, I think uh, the listeners should know, and I, I'm gonna, I mentioned this before the interview, that 
Carolyn was the one that helped me on my prior show I used to do for all the information. If you've ever listened to that episode about Josie Hughes and Trude, it was Carolyn who helped put that uh, program together, gave me a lot of information. I deeply appreciate that from last summer. So we're not going to go over the facts now. If you want to hear everything, the most in-depth coverage of Jody's case, I'd urge you to go out and find the other show that's still out there, I think, on iTunes. But regarding Jody, how did you get involved in her case? Well, Jody was abducted about 20, early 22 years on June 27, 1995. I did not start covering her case until two years later. Um, it was a case I was covering a serial rapist in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I was contacted by an investigator, a local investigator, who thought I ought to take a close look at the person they had arrested in that case, the rapes, because he had been living uh, in Mason City at the time Jody disappeared. Did some digging, we found out not only was he living in Mason City, he was living two blocks from her station. Tracked down this former girlfriend who looks a lot like Jody, broken up with him five days before Jody disappeared. A whole lot of things at least said, take a look at this guy. And to this day, I don't know if he's involved with Jody's disappearance or not, but that's what got me started. And then over the years, I stayed, did follow-up stories on various anniversaries. Six years ago, um, after I moved to California, I joined a nonprofit group called findjody.com, a group made up mostly of other journalists who came to Jody's case from different directions. And that same investigator who contacted me from Woodbury, Minnesota, Jay Alberio, is now retired. He's a member of our team. And that's how I've stayed on the Jody case the last several years. Two years ago, on the 20th anniversary of her abduction, we knew that that would be a significant abduct- significant time for both her family as well as whoever's involved. We organized a walk for Jody in Mason City, and we went down and we went from across the street from the apartment building where she disappeared, her parking lot, and we finished her journey to the TV station about a mile away. Again, just to raise awareness, to let people know we haven't forgotten, and hoping that whoever did it knows we haven't forgotten, and we still haven't forgotten. And I know this is another case, uh, just like Jacob's, that you you are taking very personally. I mean, this is not just a regular yeah. news story for you. This is something more. Well, I think for a couple of reasons. We mentioned earlier the Wetterlings. In Jody's case, I've gotten to know her family over the years. I got to know her mother who sadly died a few years ago, but her mother wanted to be able to bury Jody and say goodbye before she passed away, and she didn't get a chance to do that. But I promised her mother that I'd stay on the case. I've kept up with her sister, older sister, Joanne, who's a family spokesperson. I just talked with her a couple weeks ago, and I promised them that I will do whatever I can and use whatever tools I have, both because of my access to the media, being in the media, as well as my training, as my private investigative training, my reporting training, to do what I can to keep her story in the public eye to hopefully get a break. Mm-hmm. When I just want to go in, once again, we're not going to go into the specifics and what happened that morning of Jody. I just want to go through some things with you that I know were recently posted on findjody.com. So the listeners, if they've not been uh, there before, I want them to go there and read the articles. But I think maybe they want to hear at least a couple of these things uh, from you personally. When we talked last summer in early July of 2016, uh, a new police chief had just come to to Jody's town. Um, Now he's been in there about a year. And how has that gone? Do you think that uh, there's a renewed focus? I mean, how, uh, what kind of job is he doing? I think so. I finally, I met him a few months ago when I was back in Minnesota on the Jacob case. Uh, I met several members of the team and I met with him. We went out to lunch, visited with him 
for a private meeting for about three hours, and I, I thought it was a very good meeting. Um, he's not going to share much from his end. Of course. That's normal investigative thing not to share it, but I, we wanted him to see what we're about, and uh, he's been very supportive of our efforts. Again, we're not the police in this role. We're there as sort of clearinghouse, but if we ever come across anything, we're obviously going to share it with him. There's something that needs to be shared because we can't solve the case as an officer, but um, I'm hoping to interview him again soon. It'll be a year and a half since he became chief. He had not read the whole file at that point. I assume that he has now. I just want to see what he can share. If there's any new direction, to where where things are from a police point of view at this point. Okay. And we will be, I will put that interview on our findjody.com. And as you mentioned, if people want to follow what we're doing, I hope you'll go regularly sign up for our bulletins, go to findjody.com for that. I will also be posting on my uh, Facebook page. It's Caroline Lowe TV. It's a public page where I will put uh, various things that we're doing on that as well. So, and Twitter, if people are interested. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, there was this hubbub, I guess you'd call it, a very technical word, hubbub, about this uh-huh. retiring state rep, John, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Cooker. He made Quaker, some, yeah, Quaker. Quaker, who made some, you know, allegations. Uh, anything that you want to say about that? And your your personal impressions? I no, I re- I really don't want to wade into that. I think there, the concern was he felt that they weren't receptive to having a declared Jody Day and some other things. Uh, but I think that's really between them and the police department. We are just going to keep plugging away, doing our thing, and I don't I don't want to wade into that. Okay. Also, um, there's something that the readers will find on there about possibly Jody being antagonized. The day before, is this a new piece of information, or is this something like we talked about going back to basics? Is this something that was discovered by going back to the source material, and it kind of was glossed over at the time? We don't know what the police knew at the time, but I, I will know. I'll tell you, it had not been made public before. If they did know, and they're not sharing with us what they knew, but I discovered that I was interviewing some people who were with Jody that day at the golf tournament because we have been trying to go back and we're very much focusing on the timeline of the hours leading up to Jody's disappearance, trying to narrow the gap. And we've learned several things. One, we originally heard that she had played golf um, at the Mason City Country Club. Through our digging and um, interviewing people, we realized she was at the Mason City Country Club that night, but actually because there were so many people signed up for the Chamber of Commerce golf tournament that day she actually played in the highland uh, course nearby so she hadn't she was on a team with some other people in the highland course then she was at the mason city country club you know may not mean anything but we're trying to really have as best of a timeline as we can interviewed people who met with her there i interviewed people who golf with her um and a couple of people i talk with and they very much do not want to be identified publicly at this point is said that she did express didn't seem very concerned, but more kind of annoyed that she had been getting some calls of harassing kind of sorts. And someone said, were they nasty or naughty? And she said both, quote unquote, and that she was planning on changing her phone number, her phone the next day. And uh, have not been able to get anything from the police on that, but found it pretty interesting. Checked with some friends and family members, and they had not been aware of it. So it did not seem to be of a threatening nature from her end as you know as something it might be but it was certainly something that was concerning her enough to change her number i will say being in the business as long as many years as i have it's mm-hmm. not uncommon for people who are on the air to get calls but mm-hmm. and whether that's just a very kind of 
interesting piece of information. Whether it's relevant or not, we don't know, but we thought it was important to put it out there. It was something that the, our readers, our followers had not heard before. That brings up a good question. Being that Jody was a reporter and you're a reporter, do you find it easy to put yourself in her place, in her shoes, and oh, try to yeah, you know, yeah. a- examine her environment of what could have been going on in her life at the time? I think that's one of the unique perspectives that the members of the Fine Jody team bring, because we've been there. We've worked with morning anchors. Josh Benson, who was our co-founder, who's now an anchor in Miami, I mean, in Tampa, he he was he's an anchor. He can relate. Uh, I've been a reporter for many, many years. I've been on the air most of my adult life. And you do have a unique set of circumstances. And that's why we wonder if maybe it's directly related to her being on TV. It may turn out to be somebody she knew it. That may be irrelevant. But it, we are a diff- we are in a different circumstance than your typical victim. So I think it, we have some insight, at least on what her daily life would be like, her life being on TV would be uh, compared to many other victims. Okay. And we've talked I'm about a couple. Just- please, please. Because right, right before she, interesting, sad, right before Jody disappeared, and I just found out this recently, um, she had sent her tape, her resume reel into Carol Evan TV and sent it to Janet Mason, who was the news director back then. And I was talking with Janet recently because she's followed the case for many years. She's now in Michigan. And she told me that she paid attention to Jody's reel because she had been a reporter in Mason City. She's from Mason City. She'd been at the same station. So when she saw Jody's reel, she contacted her just two months before Jody disappeared and uh, tried to encourage her, give her some advice. And because Jody was hoping to move to the Twin Cities and Jody and I easily could have worked together someday. In any case, uh, Janet said a couple months later, you know, Jody disappears, and the video they end up using in their reports that night on CARE was from the very resume reel that uh, Jody had sent in. I mean, what a a sad turn of events. But Janet's continued to follow it 22 years later. She's moved away, but she said every time she goes back to Mason City, she talks to people. I think we're all left with this unfinished business. She was doing what we do, and she's missing. Yeah, everybody that... It's the the people who are responsible for putting the news out that most uh, can most easily identify with the victim, you know, because of that, her own profession. Be, oh, and the small market she's doing what so many people do. You start in a smaller market with a dream of getting to a bigger market. Uh, my daughter was a morning producer at our station in San Luis Obispo when I was there, and I remember thinking of her. She was going to work at ten thirty at night, and you know. In the middle of the night, that's, she had a shift so similar to Jody's, and you can really relate when you're in the same business. Yes. Um, I know there's a couple other things. If people want to find out any more about some new revelations since we did our interview last summer, I urge everybody to go to findjody.com. You've also told me about maybe one or two new suspects that we don't want to get into either. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Let's move on to, to um, something else. You told me you're working on a new case. What can you tell the listeners about that? If Whatever you're comfortable to say. No, what I'm working on is I am spending time working on cases that I worked on when I was at KSBY in San Luis Obispo. I, I did a thing, a story about a year and a half ago on people missing on the Central Coast. And most of these were not high profile cases, but... Uh, there's one gal in the late 40s, Crystal Kinney, uh, who went with her father to Home Depot in Lompoc, California. She goes with her dad to the Home Depot. They go inside to get some things. You see video of her coming out. She's never been seen since. And that's been about eight years now. And 
or excuse me, six years, and that stays with you. And you interview her elderly parents who just want to know where is she. They keep hoping that maybe somebody took her in. She had some mental health issues and some other physical issues, but they they hope that somebody found her. Uh, it doesn't sound very good, but I did a story, I said, with the parents, and I was able to convince the police to let us put the video on that they had. They had surveillance video showing her going in and out of the store, and it doesn't show anything, so she probably may try to hitchhike, get a ride to go somewhere. We just don't know, but she's one of many people I've who are missing on the Central Coast. Recently, recent years, there's been an increase of people who um, have Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia who go missing number of elderly people who just went for a walk and who disappeared. And so I really encourage people, if you have it in your county or area, to get um, one of these bracelets the way you can alert authorities if somebody wanders off. But can you imagine a grandma going out for a walk who's never found? Maybe she's in the ocean, don't know. But those are the ones I'd like to help on as well. And Jody's face is staring at me and with crystals. And, uh, and there's another gal, Cal Poly student from San Luis Obispo, who disappeared 20 years ago. Uh, I covered, supervised some of the coverage on her case two years ago, and I have her picture there as well. Her name is Christian Smart. I'm familiar with that case, yes, yes, I've heard of that case, yeah. Yeah. So they're there, and I just, the main tool we have, frankly, being in the news media, is people like you will call us and ask, we do an interview. This is one way to put it out there, and anytime I have an opportunity to keep the cases out there, continue to do that while we dig for background information. You had uh, mentioned a, a Central Coast of California case that had recently been uh, solved about a couple who had been murdered. Exactly. Actually, it was uh, it happened not too far from where I live now in Sonoma County. And they were out in an area called Bodega Bay and just camping. And the guy was, it happened about 12, 13 years ago. And the person who's responsible for it was arrested just a couple months ago for killing his brother. And while he was in custody, he gave authorities some information. They haven't disclosed specifics that led them to the information they needed to believe he killed these people as well. No connection whatsoever. Once again, somebody who'd been on a list early on didn't have enough to go with it anywhere. And only when he was caught for this other crime of killing his brother, it came out. You know, now that you're in California, you've been a couple different places. You're continuing this uh, wherever you're going. Uh, well, so. The internet and the kind of shows like you do, we're able. It's, we can do it much more easily than we could, could have done years ago. But it's it's a personal mission, and I feel with Jody, I want to help write the final chapter. I want to know the final chapter, what happened to Jody Hughes and Trude. I want her family to know it, and whatever small part I can do to lead to the resolution, I will keep doing as long as I can. Um, where can people find you online? We mentioned findjody.com. Are you anywhere else, Carolyn? That's probably the best place at this point. I'm going to be creating a website to put my unsolved cases on it, and I will put um, that I'm working on. But if, if people go to my Facebook, Caroline Lowe TV, it's a public my public Facebook page. I will be posting things there, and I will also be doing on Twitter. It's Caroline Lowe TV on Twitter. Those are the best places. Um, anything else, Carolyn, before we leave? Anything you want to say to the listeners? Any, any other things before we end the interview today? No, I'm just very grateful that you're doing this kind of show because there are so many people out there. I'm grateful you'll be focusing on cases that aren't as high profile as well because those families need answers. And many people don't know that all they need to do is pick up the phone and and call someone in the media and get them media to get them to do a story. They can do most reporters I know are always looking for stories and I think they would be more than willing to do their stories. So if they have listeners that have a loved one that's been missing for a few years and 
they would like some help, I really encourage them to reach out to a local reporter. They can go to the newspaper, go to television, see if you can't get them to do a story. It helps if there's something that they're doing. They're putting up flyers, if there's an anniversary, if there's a birthday, but use the local media. And I think that most of them will find that they'd be very receptive to helping them. Thank you for that, uh, Carolyn. And I deeply appreciate you joining me on this episode of Unfound. Thank you very much. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Words mean a lot. Thanks. And that was my interview with Caroline Lowe. She's the kind of person I could talk to all day about the topic of crime. Not actually specific cases, but how to cover it, how to convey to an audience what it needs to know, and how to not sensationalize these crimes that are about real people with real families who feel pain every day. To sharpen the point, her perspective continues to remind me that these cases aren't products to sell. They're crimes that need solved. And that's the program. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and give Unfound a five-star review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to this special edition of Unfound. Unfound.